This episode of the Proceedings Podcast is brought to you by GE Additive. Additive manufacturing, also known as 3D printing, is a transformative approach to industrial metal production that could help address material shortages due to diminishing manufacturing supply. GE Additive provides machines, metal powders, engineering, and print services that can support the Navy with spare part printing capability and a more flexible spare parts supply base. Welcome to the Proceedings Podcast. I'm Ward Carroll, the Naval Institute's Director of Outreach and Marketing. Joining me is my co-host, Bill Hamlet, the Editor-in-Chief of Proceedings Magazine. Hello once again, Bill. Hey, Ward. So we got a couple of great guests here. Uh, why don't we get right to them? Yeah, so in the April issue of Proceedings, there's an article by Colonel Mark Kansian, U.S. Marine Corps retired, and Brendan Schwartz. Uh, it is titled Unleash the Privateers. And if you open your April issue of the magazine, it's on page, it starts on page 5253. And the, uh, the premise of the article is that the United States should issue letters of mark to fight Chinese aggression at sea. And I'll just read a couple sentences from the first paragraph and then we'll get right to Mark and right to Brandon. So naval strategists are struggling to find ways to counter a rising Chinese Navy. The easiest and most comfortable course is to ask for more ships and aircraft, but with a defense budget that may have reached its peak, that may not be a viable strategy. Privateering, authorized by letters of mark, could offer a low-cost tool to enhance deterrence in peacetime and gain advantage in wartime. So letters of mark and privateering is something that we haven't heard in this century or the past century. Uh, so we go way back into the Wayback Machine. Uh, for tools that, that uh, a nation can use in fighting an adversary at sea. Uh, so, Colonel Markansian, Brandon, welcome to the Proceedings Podcast. Thanks for having us. What was the impetus for writing this article? Well, there were, there were two. The first was thinking about how the United States would deal with a great power conflict against the Chinese, particularly there's been a lot of discussion about how we would crack their A2AD envelope Brandon and I talked a little about this. Brandon is a law student and got very interested in this question about privateers, did some research and came to the conclusion that it was still legal. And we put the two together and came up with this article. Brandon, uh, start, start by telling our uh, audience, what are letters of mark? So letters of mark uh, date back at least to the 16th century, um, if not further. And letters of mark are, are commissions that come from a government, and it really is what distinguishes a privateer uh, from, you know, a pirate. Um, they, they give you permission to go beyond your country's frontiers and to capture uh, enemy vessels. So who issues them, and, and how would this work in a modern construct? So in the United States, uh, Congress would pass legislation, as we did uh, in the beginning of the 18th century, that basically says the president or whoever the president delegates the power to is able to issue letters and to uh, execute on a privateering regime. When you're looking at any issue uh, in international law, two of the primary sources for uh, law are conventional law or treaties and uh, also customary international law. So when I began looking at this issue, the first thing I looked for was sort of the low pickings, was whether the United States had signed any conventions 
that would prohibit uh, its use of privateers. Uh, the two main conventions that are often talked about in literature on this are the Paris Declaration of 1856, uh, whose first article banned privateering among the treaty parties, and also Hague Convention 7 of 1907. Now, the United States did not ratify or sign either of those treaties. And it's very important to point out that the reason it chose not to was out of a desire to preserve the right to privateer. If you go back to even the founding of our country, what we tried to do was to protect neutral property uh, and private property in general uh, during war at sea. And so we entered into some bilateral agreements that restricted it between the, par between the parties of those treaties. Uh, and we also pushed on the international stage for the immunity of private property at sea. Now, in the Paris Declaration, it abolishes privateering between the treaty parties, but what it does not do is what the U.S. sought, which was called the Marcy Amendment after the Secretary of State at the time. The Marcy Amendment would have also limited the rights of public navies to uh, to cruise on, uh, on commerce and private property. The British forcefully rejected that proposal, and because of that, the United States reluctantly said, we can't agree to this treaty, and they didn't. If you fast forward to the Civil War, the so-called Confederate States of America did issue letters of mark to uh, their privateers, and in an effort to legitimize that under international law, the United States reached out to the British and also the French and said, we will accede to the Declaration in full. But then the British responded by saying that they would not recognize that as applying to the Confederate privateers. And so that was when Secretary Seward stood back and, and very quickly uh, rescinded any U.S. offer uh, to adhere to the Declaration. Now, if you go forward uh, to 1907, uh, Convention 7 dealt with the conversion of merchant vessels into warships. Again, the delegates at this conference, the U.S. delegates, were given clear instructions that they could not uh, uh, agree to this, this convention because the U.S. reserved the, the right to privateer. Uh, that's found in the article. You can go to the footnotes. They're very difficult documents to dig up. But uh, the lead technical expert, the lead technical delegate of the U.S. delegation to that conference said as much. So that raises a question about customary international law. Quick lesson in customary international law. For it to, uh, I recognize that the audience isn't lawyers. Um, custom is formed by relatively consistent state practice done out of a sense of legal obligation, which is also known as opinio juris. What that really means is that you have two elements. You want to look for state practice, but you, you do not credit practice that's not done out of a sense of legal obligation. So... The United States has not issued a letter of mark since the 19th century, the early 19th century. Uh, the last, other than the Confederate example, I believe the Republic of Texas issued a letter, uh, six letters of mark in the 1830s. But so the question is, is, did the United States stop privateering because it felt legally obligated to stop privateering? Or was it just a policy reason? Was it street strategically unuseful? And, uh, uh, President Roosevelt actually uh, addressed this in 1941 at the start of the Second World War when he, had, he essentially said, 
look, I, I do not want to uh, start back in on this mode. But he importantly didn't say this is illegal under international law. What he said was it's just not practical. It's not strategically useful. And this was a, a, a significant statement. So once you've got a letter of mark, if you're a, a, a merchant mariner, if you're somebody who has a vessel or has the ability to operate and capture a, a ship at sea, when you seize that vessel and you've got a letter of mark that makes it legal, uh, you seize that vessel, it becomes a prize. So talk about uh, what, what a prize is and how it is uh, essentially turned into something that is, uh, you know, turned to a profit for the person who is the privateer. Uh, and then how does that also impact or does any part of that prize go to the government that has issued the letter of mark? So what's called prize law is a fairly well-developed, uh, though not recently used, body of law uh, that is very consistent internationally. It has been incorporated into a number of nations' domestic legislation, including the United States. Uh, a number of people are s surprised to find out that the United States still has prize law on the books. But so in the United States context, in the U.S. context, there is a, a well-developed body of law that, uh, on, in the statutes and also case law that courts can look to to adjudicate these claims. In the United States, um, there is, in 1899, Congress did change the law, they amended the law, so that all net proceeds of uh, uh, prize claims, they end up going to the Treasury. This was uh, a change in practice. Uh, previously, those uh, the money could be paid out to uh, commanders of public naval vessels or also privateers. So if a privateering regime was turned to again, we would have to amend the law. Mark, if you would talk a little bit about how this is an asymmetric vulnerability. The Chinese, if we're, if we're looking to deter in peacetime or defeat in wartime, uh, the, the Chinese, uh, the Chinese Navy or the Chinese maritime system, if you will, uh, how is that an asymmetric vulnerability for them? The problem that the Navy faces is that it's looking at a Chinese Navy and land-based capabilities that have developed this A2AD bubble, this uh, anti-area uh, access denial bubble around China. And there's been a lot of thinking about how the United States might crack that bubble but it's very difficult, and it would be very uh, expensive uh, to do that. We were looking for ways that would avoid that, avoid pitting our strength against their strength. And their merchant uh, fleet uh, is one such area. The Chinese have about 4,500 uh, cargo ships. They have another 2,500 global fishing ships uh, that are all over the world. The United States has only about 250 U.S. flagships. Those are mostly in coastal trade as a result of the Jones Act that requires trade between U.S. ports to be done in U.S. flagships. So they have a lot of exposure. We have relatively little. Further, it's much easier for our privateers, our ships, to get into the global commons. The Chinese would be hard-pressed to try to uh, to blockade our shores. On the other hand, the U.S. Navy would be able to put a blockade around China, make it very hard for their uh, any of their uh, ships or privateers, if they wanted to do that, to get out. So this was a classic asymmetric situation, pitting our strength against their weakness. And I would argue this is the essence of strategy to try to do that. 
So you say towards the end of the article, the notion of privateering makes naval strategists uncomfortable because it is an approach to war that does not conform to the way the U.S. Navy has fought since 1815. Give me a, a modern sort of scenario where, where what type of platform would engage what type of Chinese platform where? How would this go down? What I would expect is that the Congress would authorize these letters of mark, as Brandon said. The president would issue them to a private contractor who would outfit a ship and take that out and go hunting for these 6,500 Chinese vessels out there and would capture some. The ships, the privateers, would not have to be very heavily armed because they're taking on uh, unarmed merchant ships. They would just have to be able to convince the captain that it would be wiser to surrender and turn the ship over to the Americans and, and get offloaded in a near by port and spend the rest of the, uh, the, the war in comfortable uh, internship, uh, and then bring those ships back to a prize court, whether in the United States or whether uh, on, in a territory or even in an uh, allied country, uh, and then to settle the financial side. And just one container ship with hundreds of containers on it would likely be worth tens of millions of dollars, and it's the kind of incentive that would send lots and lots of privateers to sea. That's what happened in the Revolution. It's what happened in 1812, and I think it would happen in any 21st century conflict with the Chinese. This is just a way to solve the numbers problem. Well, it's a way to attack a Chinese vulnerability. If the United States Navy had 5,000 ships, as it did at the end of World War II, this wouldn't be an issue because they could use those 5,000 ships to hunt down Chinese merchant ships. We only have 300. They're going to be fully uh, engaged with the Chinese in the Western Pacific. And whatever's not engaged there is going to be dealing with other global threats, maybe the Russians, you know, maybe the Iranians or North Koreans. So it's not going to be much of a U.S. Navy available to go hunt down these uh, ships. The United States needs to find some other mechanism to do that, and privateers provide that mechanism. And the idea being to uh, bring the Chinese economy bring its trade uh, to its knees. That's right. And it goes deeper than that because the Chinese Communist Party has essentially made a deal with its people. That is that the party will provide stability and prosperity and in return it will conduct it will run an authoritarian regime without democracy. And if a conflict undermined that deal, that is took away the prosperity part, that would uh, endanger the, uh, or threaten the future of the Chinese Communist Party. And just that threat would uh, add to deterrence, make them realize that a war with the United States would not just be about some islands in the South China Sea, but would put their whole regime at risk. And what we want is that when the Chinese are thinking about war and peace, their trade minister and their economics minister start jumping up at the table saying, no, no, no this will ruin us economically, don't do it. Interesting point. So you point out at the bottom of page 55 here, the existing private military industry, so think uh, Blackwater, etc., uh, would doubtless jump at the chance to privateer. Dozens of companies currently provide security services from the equivalent of mall guards to armed anti-piracy contingents on ships. 
a large pool of potential recruits issue and willingness to work for private contractors. So there's, um, there's a, a ship that receives a letter or a captain that re- receives a letter of mark from the United States government. Does he or she have to be an American citizen to do this, or can the U.S. government provide letters of mark to foreign sailors, to foreign uh, merchants, merchant uh, marines, etc., overseas? Let me ask answer one question first, and then I'm going to defer that one to uh, Brandon. But the, the question about recruiting crews for these kinds of vessels has come up, and the point we wanted to make in that paragraph is that the experience both of the 2000s when the United States uh, did recruit security contractors and the experience of the 18th and 19th centuries is that this is not hard to do. The incentives are so great and the potential rewards of capturing even a single vessel are so great that there would be lots of companies, lots of individuals who would be willing to put a ship to sea and take the risk. You know, in the 18th, 19th century, lots of privateers were captured. Uh, it was it was a lost uh, investment, but enough of them captured prizes to make it worthwhile, and I think you'd see the same thing in a 21st century conflict. I'll, I'll turn to Brandon for the question about whether foreign uh, uh, captains could participate. So the United States felt that it needed to issue letters of mark, not just to U.S. citizens, but also to other people uh, from other countries, the United States could consider doing that with a co-belligerent. Once you start talking about bringing neutral neutrals in, citizens who are you know uh, from a neutral state, you you will run into issues with those states' domestic laws, which might prohibit their citizens from taking part in. Uh, conflicts that their countries are not uh, a belligerent in, so you would come, you would run into issues with with neutrals on that. So the, you guys were talking before the show that you, there has been some criticism of of your thesis. Um, what is that criticism, and how do you counter it? Let me make two responses here. Uh, the first actually came from your editorial board, and my reading of their response was that the reactions were one-third, one-third, one-third. The one-third of the board thought that this was a pretty interesting idea and should be pursued. One-third of the board maybe didn't agree, but thought that a professional journal ought to encourage innovative thinking, and this was innovative. And one-third hated the idea. Uh, They (laughs) said that this is not the way we we fight wars. And in the broader community, we're getting a, a similar reaction. Now, there was an article just recently in National Interest, criticizing our piece. And I will say that they were fair to our piece. They quoted us extensively. Uh, But the author made two criticisms. One was that the Chinese could authorize their own privateers and that that would endanger uh, U.S. trade. But as I mentioned, U.S. only has about 250 ships. But this author also said, well, the Chinese privateers could attack neutral shipping that was heading to the United States because the United States is very heavily dependent on um, international trade. My response is, that's exactly where we want the Chinese to be. We want them attacking neutral shipping and bringing all those neutrals onto our side because we're going to be faced with a situation where many of our allies are going to be reluctant to become involved in a conflict with the Chinese, particularly the Europeans. 
And having the Chinese attack their shipping is exactly what we want them to do to bring them in on our side. We should remember that one of the reasons the United States got involved in the War of 1812 was because the British were attacking our shipping. We were neutrals, and uh, they were seizing our ships. It brought us into the war, and uh, I think it would have the same effect uh, in the future. The other issue he brought up was uh, the question of, open quote, mercenaries, close quote, uh, didn't like the idea of these contractors being sent off in the name of the United States. I'd make two arguments and then turn it over to Brandon on the specific legal aspects. But back in the 2000s, the United States used a lot of contractors in uh, Iraq and Afghanistan. Some of the security contractors committed uh, atrocities. Uh, of course, Blackwater was uh, most infamous in this regard. But in the, as a result, the United States instituted a large number of reforms requiring uh, contractors to make certain certifications that recruits only certain kinds of personnel to give them certain kinds of training. Then there was oversight by the United States that was provided. So any future regime that involved privateers would borrow from that uh, experience to put the right kinds of controls in place. And I'll turn to Brandon to talk to this question about mercenaries, although many commentators just use that as a pejorative and not in the strictly legal sense. And it is a, it is a legally significant term. Um, it's well-defined under international law. But like Mark said, most uh, folks who have commented on this are probably not using it in the strictly legal sense. But if you do analyze you know, that important question under the law, so the prohibition on mercenaries is really found in Additional Protocol 1 of the Geneva Conventions, which uh, dates back to 1977. The United States did not uh, sign or ratify that treaty in in part because of the provision on mercenaries. This was uh, one of the first instances where, um, rather than expanding the protections of the law of war to different categories of combatants, uh, they were being retracted. Um, so the United States uh, felt strongly that this was not the right course to take, and, and I think wisely. The United States also doesn't uh, observe any customary international legal prohibition on mercenaries. But even if those last two points weren't true, you, you would have to look at the additional Protocol 1's text itself. And by the terms of the treaty itself, privateers would never be labeled mercenaries so long as they're a national of a party to the conflict, or they're a resident of territory controlled by a party to the conflict. I think the concerns about mercenaries are really grounded in concerns that these privateers would go and would be violating international law and committing atrocities. I think a lot of the concerns about mercenaries are really rooted in deeper concerns about privateers violating international law and committing atrocities. It's very important to remember that we're not just sending them out and letting them do as they wish. Uh, the, the United States uh, Congress would be able to put clauses and, and, um, and they would be able to incentivize the privateers to adhere to international law. Privateers would be uh, absolutely bound by the law of war, the Geneva Conventions. Uh, they would also receive some of the protections of the Geneva Conventions. If you look at the commentary to the Second Geneva Conventions, which uh, the ICRC commentary, which came out in, in 1960, they actually mentioned that privateers would be, if it was ever resurrected, they would fall under uh, the Article 13 uh, provisions of, of that convention. Um, 
But you also have to look at it in a practical manner that that uh, by committing atrocities or violations of the law, when you take a prize into into court and a district court adjudicates the claim, they're going to consider those things and they're going to consider the harm that's been done to the flag state of the vessel and to the people on board the vessel and the owners of that vessel. And that would financially harm uh, the privateers. So there are a lot of incentives that uh, that promote good behavior and the adherence to international law, including the law of neutrality, which protects neutral vessels. When you bring up Blackwater and our experiences in Iraq particularly, as you said, Mark, we, we learned some hard lessons there in terms of the uh, oversight of mercenaries, the oversight of contractors, you know, who they hire. And, it, you know, as we peeled that onion, it, it, they had some sketchy guys who had checkered pasts in special operations in uniform. You know, particularly in the uh, early years of the war, um, it was total cowboy scene, right? And, and uh, um, I think that was also tacitly supported by the White House at that time when things were going, let's just say, well. Um, they were viewed as a force multiplier in kinetic circumstances in a way that they were it was never the original intent for what they would do. Um, so when I think of ships, let's say in the South China Sea, who who owns the oversight of what vessels are being used? Who's manning these vessels? Um, what is the training track for uh, for the crew and the captains? Certification, all of this stuff. And then what happens, to your point, Brandon, if, um, I, I get it there, you fall under the Geneva Convention, but if they turn out to, like, if the tables are turned and they become prisoners of war, is their status as if they were active duty service members of the United States? Uh, and, and then it becomes sort of a, a, an additional problem for diplomacy and other elements of war that is sort of an unforeseen consequence of, of doing the privateer thing. Let me, let me start there uh, and first note that these privateers aren't going into the South China Sea. Uh, they are going to be roaming the global commons. The South China Sea is going to be much too dangerous for them. That's where the U.S. Navy needs to go with all of its warships and its missiles and its uh, defensive systems. And that's the great thing, that while the U.S. Navy is uh, focused on South China Sea, these other uh, these privateers are uh, roaming the globe. Uh, but in awarding uh, letters of mark, the uh, U.S. can do what it's done with uh, private uh, contractors now in uh, Iraq and Afghanistan, for example, requiring certain training. Uh, right now they have to uh, adhere to international standards of training, and uh, you can put requirements for personnel, and I think those are in place right now, uh, and you can put whatever other requirements you, you desire. For instance, I could imagine that you know, the captain would have to have certain licenses to operate the ship. And that's so is, all, is there an uh, existing agency, Mark, or would we have to create a new one? What happened in the in, in the war in Iraq, for instance? Was, it, was there an existing agency that, that controlled the Blackwaters and the Halliburtons of the world, or do we create new ones? What we needed to create were uh, contracting uh, mechanisms because there were not enough contracting officers to let the contracts and to oversee the contracts. And the contracts themselves didn't have the kind of provisions that were needed to safeguard both the uh, uh, U.S. interests 
and uh, uh, the locals. The new contracts do have those uh, protections in them. And I would point out that you haven't heard anything about contractor malfeasance in a decade. And that's not an accident. The United States, there was a huge problem. The United States put in place some reforms, and those reforms have been successful. Two things. One, um, Mark, you mentioned a minute ago the editorial board of the Naval Institute, and we do have that for our listeners who aren't familiar, perhaps. The Naval Institute has had for uh, its whole existence about a 9, 10, 11-member board. They are all active duty officers and uh, senior enlisted Navy Marine Corps Coast Guard representing the different tribes. So we have uh, a naval aviator, Coast Guard, Cutterman. We've got a, a Marine Sergeant Major. We've got uh, surface warfare officers and submarine officers and, and uh, Marine ground pounders, etc. cetera. Uh, and, and you're right that the read from the board, when they read this, some, some of our board members loved this article. Some of them thought, well, it'd be good to stimulate this debate, and others thought it was the dumbest idea that they'd ever heard. But when we have that kind of a disagreement on the editorial board, we almost have an unwritten rule at the Naval Institute that we see such a dichotomy of view on an article, it's probably good to publish it because it's something that will stir up a, a discussion and probably will generate a good debate and that will further uh, thinking on, on something that might be a controversial topic. So you're, you're reading on, on how, we, how the board read this piece and the staff read it smack dab on. Uh, the other thing I wanted to ask a question about, Brandon, for you, the United Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea, does that have any elements that address privateers and prize law? The convention doesn't have any elements that directly address privateers or prize law. They, there are certain provisions that might impact privateering um, when you're on the high seas, even during conflict. The, the UNCLOS does not dissolve just because conflict abides. UNCLOS has provisions that incorporate the law of armed conflict at sea through clauses that essentially say, uh, other rules of international law. Those apply in, on the high seas, in the EEZ, and regarding activities on the continental shelf and elsewhere. There is Article 29 of UNCLOS reflects language that was used in the 1958 Convention on the High Seas, which the United States is a party to. It's important to remember the United States is not a party to UNCLOS, though um, it's very well established that, uh, that the United States views UNCLOS's navigational regimes as reflective of customary international law, and it abides by those, uh, and it expects others to do the same. Now, so under Article 29, you do have the def a definition of a warship, and this there are a number of arguments that some scholars have made over the past century, maybe uh, 120 years claiming that the United States has somehow acceded to what's called the Paris Declaration from 1856 or even to the Hague Conventions in 1907. A very small number of, of scholars have claimed that the U.S. Uh, somehow has acquiesced in its right to privateer by signing the 1958 Convention, which um, includes this definition of a warship. That is quite a, quite a reach because... If you look at the the negotiations for that convention and also the negotiations for UNCLOS, uh, which the United States participated in and, quite frankly, led led in, privateering following the Second World War, it uh, a naval historian named uh, Michael Crawford, he sort of said it just left the national conscious. 
a conscience. It, it was um, hotly debated in the uh, 19th century. It was If you opened up a newspaper, you might see letters to the editor about it, but it really did go sort of out of mind. And it, it's a surprising conclusion to come to that that a, an enumerated power of the U.S. Congress was somehow forfeited under international law without any debate in Congress, without anybody even remotely commenting on it at the time. I, I want to return to a question that I think was asked about um, uh, the equivalency of uh, privateers and uh, your regular uniformed armed services uh, under international law and the law of war. Um, so you really would want to look at the individual issues. And I hate to, yeah, law professors often say it depends when uh, law students ask questions, but it does gen, uh, genuinely depend on the particular situation. If you look at some of the very important documents like uh, the Second Geneva Convention or the Third Geneva Convention, uh, which regards rights of uh, POWs, there there are some four criteria that we set out in the article that are uh, generally agreed that would uh, bring privateers under the protections of those conventions. One is that they're commanded by a person responsible for his subordinates. So there's a captain. The second is that they bear fixed distinctive signs recognizable at a distance. That's very easy to accommodate. That they, the third one is that they carry arms openly. I would caution people on taking a, a sort of narrow view on what that means. Uh, to a layman, that might mean that they, you know, very openly carry arms and people can see them. Uh, but that really isn't the legal understanding of that phrase. The fourth uh, condition is that they conduct their operations in accordance with the laws and customs of war. And again, that gets us back to a point that I must underscore and emphasize. Um, I, I am a, a lawyer and I, I believe in adhering to the law, and I'm not going to promote diverging from the law, especially such important laws as the law of war. Uh, these privateers cannot go around running and gunning. They're going to need to take the law very seriously. They're going to need to train on it and teach it, and they're going to have to be held accountable for their actions. Back to the second one, Brandon. So do they need like a, a their logo, or what? what is the the way that they identify themselves, they don't, they're not flying the, the American flag, or are they? Well, so they, they, uh, they would fly the American flag. They would presumably be U.S. flag vessels. Uh, certainly the majority of them would be. So they would have the U.S. flag. Uh, I, I proudly have it in my living room. They should proudly hoist it themselves. Um, uh, and regarding you know, fixed distinctive signs, these Congress could even, in their sort of uh, authorizing legislation, they can set out what privateers have to, you know, paint or affix to their boats. And it, it, I think it would be wise to have a standard symbol. That way, uh, other American privateers will know who these, these vessels are, and it will help neutrals. You have to remember that neutrals have... Uh, significant protections under the law. H hundreds of years of legal development have have uh, taken place where we've tried to limit the impact of law on neutrals. 
And part of that is is um, allowing neutrals to continue operating on the high seas and in EEZs, and also especially in their territorial waters. And you you would want to be recognizable to them to help effectuate that. As you were talking, I just had a vision of that scene in Jaws where the mayor incentivizes the citizens of Amityville to go out and find the shark. (laughs) (laughs) I think that that people people like being deputized. They like being useful in a crisis. If you look right now at the crisis we're in, a lot of people are taking a lot of meaning by by being useful uh, in it. And there is also something that's important to note about, just historically, about American privateers versus um, your French privateer or your British privateer. It's pretty well established in the literature that the, the American privateers surprised a lot of international uh, observers back in the War of 1812 and before because they were, uh, they were really driven not just by profit. Profit was a huge motivator for them, but also by a great patriotism. A lot of them sailed out of uh, New England, and uh, they took to the sea with great pride, and they were uh, motivated by a lot of the ideas of our founding. And uh, there are a number of instances you can you can look back at the uh, the logs and the cases where privateers went out, and it cost them vastly more money to uh, to capture a vessel than that vessel was worth. And the only explanation for that was they were trying to help win the war. There was a real patriotism there. Yeah, I think that was true in the early part of the Iraq War as well. It started with a patriotism. Um, that was the motivation of all of those contractors. And then as, as time goes on, absent oversight and regulation, it can get out of bounds. Is it legal uh, for the U.S. Navy, the Coast Guard, for the U.S. government to provide uh, intelligence, surveillance, reconnaissance, targeting information to privateers to help them find and capture prizes? So there, there's no provision of international law that would prohibit that. Um, and I personally, I'm not a strategist, but I would uh, I would promote that. I think it's very smart for uh, the U.S. government to aid this effort, and it, it wouldn't change their status under the law. That, there are, uh, if you look actually back at the Nuremberg trials, um, when Dernitz was on trial for sinking British vessels without warning, unrestricted uh, warfare, there was actually an interesting discussion of the fact that those British vessels had uh, instructions to telegraph back their position and the uh, nature of the the submarine or whatever it was that had surfaced. And that was a threat to the Germans, and it it did forfeit certain rights of those vessels under the law of war. I want to step back and look at broad strategic picture, which is, in this kind of conflict, the United States would face a threat that it has not faced since 1942. The conflicts that we have been involved in since the end of the Cold War have all been regional conflicts where we have had uh, a monopoly on maritime power, a monopoly on air power. And we have to think very differently about a great power conflict. The experience of the last 25 years is not helpful in many ways. We've gotten into bad habits of operations and bad habits of thinking, and that was the impetus behind this article. 
we need to think differently. This is going to be a much more difficult struggle than we have experienced. Think 1942, not wars against Iraq. Our guests today have been Colonel Mark Cancy, U.S. Marine Corps retired, and Brandon Schwartz, a lawyer. Their article, Unleash the Privateers, appears starting on page 52 and 53 of the April issue of Proceedings Magazine. Uh, Mark and Brandon, great to have you on the podcast. Thank you so much for writing the article and for being on the show today. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Well, that wraps up another episode of the Proceedings Podcast. Remember, victory begins at the Naval Institute. We'll catch you next week. This episode of the Proceedings Podcast is brought to you by GE Additive. Additive manufacturing, also known as 3D printing, is a transformative approach to industrial metal production that could help address material shortages due to diminishing manufacturing supply. GE Additive provides machines, metal powders, engineering, and print services that can support the Navy with spare part printing capability and a more flexible spare parts supply base. 